I want us to look this morning at John chapter 13, John chapter 13 and the first 11 verses, John 13 verses 1 to 11. For about 13 years, I was a member in Bethel Baptist Kevin Hengoid, and I can remember an occasion on a Friday night, we had a meeting for young people, and there were two boys, perhaps in their early teens, and they were playing pool or snooker with each other. And one of our members was standing next to them, getting to know them, asking them questions. Um, What's your name? Who's your mam? Who's your dad? Those kinds of questions. And this lady was from the village. She'd uh, lived in Kevin Hengoid all her life. And so she started to work out how between these boys, there was a connection. And these boys went out with new information. You're related. And uh, they didn't know. It was quite distant. And it was quite complicated. Uh, But she'd worked it out in some way these boys were, this is the word she used, they were belonging to each other. Are you familiar with that term? Uh, You're belonging. You belong to each other. And now I want us, as I said, to look at these verses uh, this morning at the beginning of John chapter 13. Uh, John chapters 14 to 17, if you have a Bible, uh, some Bibles don't they? They put the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in red. If you have one of those Bibles, you'll notice that chapters 14 to 17 is very red. It's sometimes known as the upper room discourse. So Jesus is here with his disciples. He is in a room in a house somewhere in Jerusalem. It is the Thursday afternoon leading into the Thursday evening before the Friday on which he was crucified. And so they are there, uh, they are together, they are eating the Passover meal together. This is Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And we are given the conversation. We are given what they, what they talked about on this particular afternoon and evening. Uh, these words are recorded for us in, in John chapters 14 to 17. Now, we read in verse 1 here that... Jesus knew something. What did he know? He knew that his hour had come, uh, that he should depart from this world. If you're familiar with John's gospel, you might know that the theme of his hour runs right through the gospel. Uh, So back in uh, chapter 2, Jesus says to his mother, uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then there are more examples than this, but let me just give you these. In chapter 7 and verse 30, uh, John narrates his gospel and he says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then again in chapter 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple and uh, John writes this. He taught in the temple, uh, chapter 8 and verse 20, he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Come. So from those verses, we can, we can see the hour in mind seems to be the hour of his death, the moment of his death. The moment of his death has not yet come. But then we get to chapter 12, and the tense, if you like, changes. So chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then again, verse 27 of chapter 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose 
I have come to this hour. His hour has come. The moment has arrived. The hour is upon him. Now, if you knew that your hour had come, we might forgive you if you were a little self-indulgent and you considered yourself. I am about to die. And your thoughts were inward and inwardly focused upon yourself. Here we see, however, the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ in these chapters. Uh, when I was growing up here, I remember, I think I was a, a sixth former, John Snyder was here, and he had a little book he read with some of us, and it was by a, a 19th century Scottish preacher, William Blakey, and it was called The Inner, or Glimpses of the Inner Life of Our Lord. Now, that's what these chapters are about. We see something of the inner life of our Lord. We see something of the emotions of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see here is his heart for his people. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, read these chapters and read them with that in mind. The Lord Jesus Christ is for his people. Does he love me? Is he with me? Well, he is going to the moment. He is going to the moment where after this he will go into the garden and such is the intensity of what's about to happen, he will sweat great drops of blood. He is going to the cross. What does that mean? He's going to take the wrath of God upon sin, uh, for sin upon himself. And yet here we see his heart is for his people. And so we read here in verse 1, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now, the disciples are on his heart. He loved them to the end. What does that mean? He loved them to the end. Well, it certainly means this. He loved them to the end of his life. He is going to go to the cross for them. He's not going to pull out of this, as it were. This is the hour, the climax of his life, the very purpose for which he came is here. He is going to love them to the end. Uh, over in, in John chapter 15 and, and verse 13, uh, we read this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Uh, and uh, I mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane. There he will say, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to go through with it. It's the purpose, the hour for which he came. He will love them to the end, to the end of his life. And so we see something of the quality of his love. I remember when one of our children was younger, uh, they, were, they were badly behaved. And uh, my wife and I were going out for the evening. And uh, it left on a bad note, as it were. We went out of the house under a cloud. One of the children had been naughty, and there we, we went out, leaving them with whoever was looking after them. And when we were out, we went past a shop, and there was a little sign you could buy, and uh, there was a picture of a little boy, and on it it said, I love you to the moon and back. And uh, feeling glum about uh, the way we'd left the house, we wanted to, to come home with a message. Oh, we love you. And this is the quality of our love. How can you measure the moon and back? I don't know. If Andy Christophides was here, he'd probably give us a, a, a little number. How far is it to the moon and back? I don't know. But it can't be measured, especially if you're a little child. can't be measured. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. He loves his people that much. He goes to the cross. 
But perhaps something else is meant here. In the Greek, there's only two words. Uh, we have, he loved them to the end. In the Greek, it's ace telos, to the end. So to the end of his life. But maybe there's something else in mind. Maybe he has in mind to the end of their lives. Jesus is going. That's the whole point of this upper room discourse. He is going. He prays for his disciples who will remain in the world. He is going to the Father. It's there in verse 1. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. And so his hour doesn't just refer to his crucifixion, but also to his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his glorification there. He is going to the Father, but they must remain here. And so how will they cope? He thinks of them. He is equipping them. He prays for them. And now he gives them this assurance. I will love you to the end. What is meant there? Well, perhaps also this. Not just to the end of his life, not just to the moment of crucifixion, but also to the end of their lives. He will be with you to the end. His hour had to come to depart out of this world. I am no longer in the world, he prays in John chapter 17. In chapter 17, he prays this. Chapter 17, verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And then verse 15 of chapter 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for them. I'm leaving. They are in this world. They will face a battle. As Jesus prays in the garden, he says to Peter, who falls asleep, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. If you love the Lord's day, if you're a Christian and you love the Lord's day, you love being with God's people on the Lord's Day. Sundays can be such a blessing, can't they? We love Sundays. We love to come and feast on God's Word. But then Sunday comes to an end, and you have the Sunday night blues, because Monday morning is looming, and you've got whatever Monday morning brings. But often then, it's then when we're feeling so, so elated, so thrilled by the Gospel, then that we need to Watch and pray, lest I enter into temptation. Do you remember Peter? Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, one of you is going to deny me. Well, it won't be me. Uh, you're, you're going to flee. These all might run away, but I won't. I'll lay down my life for you. Now, when you read those words of Peter, I believe him. I think that was the, the true sentiment of his heart. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what happened? Well, we know what happened. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. But here's this encouragement. The Lord Jesus Christ is with his people. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 7 verse 23 tells us he always lives to make intercession for us. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven now. What is he doing? He is making intercession for us. Now, some people say... Some theologians will say he makes intercession just by his presence. He is present at the right hand of the Father. And because he is present, he is the lamb that was slain. The sacrifice has been made. There is no condemnation for his people. And of course, that is true. But Hebrews does use the language of intercession, which is an active language. We're given the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. 
praying on behalf of his people. We have a saviour who looks over us. In John chapter 17, we read of Jesus praying for his disciples then, but he, he continues to pray. He prays for you now in heaven. We know too, don't we, that in these words, Jesus loved them to the end. Uh, whatever precisely is meant by John in these words, we can surely say this because this is the truth of Scripture. He will love us to the end of our lives, and more than that, he will love us on into eternity. There will never be a time when the Lord's people are not loved by him. Uh, we sometimes sing a hymn, Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. It will be forever. Jesus is departing from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, to the end of his life. He will love you to the end of your life. He will love you on into eternity. Uh, are you assured of that this morning? Are you convinced of that? That you have a saviour who is with you? I'm sure you know that poem called Footprints. Now please don't be offended by what I'm about to say, but it, there's, there's, there's a poem and the poet um, at the end of their life they look back and they see these footprints in the sand and they see these dark moments, storms, which were the terrifying uh, times of their lives when they were worried and anxious. And at those times, instead of there being two sets of footprints in the sand, there was only one. And so the poet says, well, at the end of their life, they say, Lord, where were you? Uh, where were you in those darkest times? And uh, you might know the poem, I was carrying you. I once heard someone change the end, and uh, they were poking fun of the poem, but I think they spoke great truth. At the end, they changed the poem, where were you, Lord? And the reply is, I thought it would be nice if we hopped. Okay, so only, only one set of footprints while they were hopping. It was fun to hop. Now, as I said, please don't be offended by that. Where's the truth in that? The truth is this, for the Christian, there is joy even in those dark moments. That you can have joy even when you are weeping through tears of sorrow. Because you know that the Lord is with you. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is this. Whatever my circumstances are as a believer, I can have joy. I can have joy if I feel I'm under the Lord's blessing. If there are many things bringing me happiness. I can say, praise the Lord. The Lord is with me. What else can happen? If we, if we don't feel like we're being blessed, what are the things that can happen to us? We can feel like we're being blessed. We can die. But even that is good because it's to be with the Lord, which is far better. Or if I don't feel like things are going well and I feel as if things are going badly, even then I can have joy. How can I have joy even then? Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Even through the dark periods, I know the Lord is doing something. He is at work, 
even in this. I might not know what it is. I might never know what it is. I might never in this life know what the Lord's purpose was in that particular thing. But I have this assurance, he did have a purpose. And therefore I can have confidence and I can have joy in him. And so take comfort. Uh, Take comfort in the unchanging, unending, unfailing love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Think of that verse in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where's the evidence that the Lord is with me? Well, he's given the greatest thing he could ever give. He has given his son to take upon himself the wrath that I deserve for my sin so that I might have eternal life. How do I know the Lord is with me even in this? Well, because of that, which leads us on to the rest of these verses. Now, let's move quickly through these verses. Uh, Look on from verse 2. We read this, John 13, verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. So this is during supper. Uh, They're eating together uh, while the meal was taking place. What does Jesus do? We make an assumption from what he does that no one has washed their feet before eating. Uh, What's going on there? When you go home for dinner this afternoon, you probably won't wash your feet Uh, But that's because we eat in a different way to how Jesus and the disciples would have eaten here in the upper room in Jerusalem. Uh, You might be familiar with uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. Well, it's, it's, it's not accurate because they are not sitting at a table. They're sitting at a table in that painting as, as we sit at a table in a long line. Uh, but often in the Gospels, we read those words, Jesus reclined at table. And so the custom was to sit at a low table with your feet stretched out. Now, if your feet are stretched out, they are in quite close proximity to your food, and uh, you've been walking the unpaved streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, your feet are dirty, and uh, you might want to wash your feet before eating. It would have been the custom in some houses, as you went in to eat, there would have been a servant by the door with a towel and a basin full of water ready to wash the feet of the guests who entered. But it wasn't something that was thought highly of, okay? You wouldn't, you wouldn't wash anyone's feet, as it were. Um, these servants, in, in fact, in Jewish households, um, this would be a job that would be reserved for a Gentile servant. It was something thought, you wouldn't ask your fellow Jew to do it. Get a Gentile servant to do it. It certainly wasn't something you would ask your, your peers to do, your friends to do for you. You wouldn't expect a friend to wash your feet for you. And so we read here that Jesus rose from supper and began to wash the disciples' feet. The disciples haven't done it. 
They wouldn't have considered washing the feet of each other, and so they've just sat down and they've got on with the meal. But now as the meal has commenced and no feet have been washed, Jesus himself gets up. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 22, we're told shortly before this, just before this meal, there had been a dispute amongst the disciples as to which of them should be regarded as the greatest. Well, none of them are going to wash feet, are they? Thinking like that. And so we read that Jesus rose from supper and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, there is a similarity here between John 13 and Philippians chapter 2. So we had two readings this morning, John 13 and Philippians chapter 2. Jesus really here is teaching the object lesson of the theology that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2. So we we had an object lesson this morning. I I threw a paper aeroplane, and uh, I'm burdened by the fact there's there's one stuck there on the balcony. Uh, But it's an object lesson, something we can see, something we can look at. The Lord Jesus Christ gives something for his disciples to see here. And what does he give them to see? He gives them the truth of Philippians chapter 2. Now, you don't have to do this. You can just listen. But if you want to, you can flick between John 13 and Philippians chapter 2. We read, Jesus arose from supper and began uh, to wash his disciples' feet. Um, We read in verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments. He laid aside his garments. What do we read in Philippians chapter 2? In Philippians 2 and verse 6, we read, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, Here is one who is equal with the Father. Here is one who is everything it means to be God. Everything it means to be God is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he lays the glory of heaven aside, and takes to himself human nature. He takes to himself the form of a servant. And so we read, he laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel and tied it round his waist. Do you see what's going on? Jesus looks like a servant in John chapter 13, which is the theology of Philippians chapter 2. He made himself Nothing. Philippians 2 verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Lord Jesus Christ is acting out here, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2 verse 5. Um, Sorry, no, verse 5 of John 13. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What is Jesus going to do in less than 24 hours' time? He is going to pour out his blood for his people so they might be washed clean. Now think uh, think of foot washing. Think what a horrible thing it must be to wash somebody else's dirty feet. And yet when we think of an illustration or we think of an object lesson, it always points to something greater than itself. It points to something much more real. The grime of dirty feet is nothing compared to what it took to wash away the grime of my life. Everything I've done, 
every grimy thought that has gone through my dirty mind. The Lord Jesus Christ takes the wrath of God upon himself for sin through the shedding of his blood. The most important thing for you to understand in all the world is that you need the Lord Jesus Christ to wash you clean. And this is something that Peter had to understand here. Look at Peter's words. Look at verse 6. We read, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In the Greek, the word you and my are next to each other. You, my feet. Peter loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He's followed him. He's committed himself to him. He adores him. He's seen, he's seen something of the glory of the Lord Jesus unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. He later writes in his epistle, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We've seen his majesty. And now therefore, you wash my feet. Look at Jesus' reply, verse 7. Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus is saying to Peter, you don't get it yet, but when you see everything that's about to happen, and when you receive the Holy Spirit that is promised in these chapters, who will give you understanding and bring to your mind all the things I've said to you, then you will understand these things. What I'm doing now, I'm showing you what's about to happen. What's about to happen is the cross. And what's the cross all about? The cross is what you need to be washed clean. And to be washed clean, you need me to wash you clean. Now, this is what we all need to understand. A Scottish theologian died recently, a few weeks ago, Donald MacLeod. He wrote a little book, From Glory to Golgotha. And in that book, he wrote this. We want a God whose feet we can wash and whom we can place in our debt so that we can walk into heaven with our heads high, self-made, self-washed, self-saved. That's what Peter essentially says here. Don't wash my feet. So what does Jesus say to him? If I don't wash your feet, verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Uh, the word share is the word inheritance. It could be translated as inheritance. And uh, in John chapter 14, God willing, we'll, we'll look at this, these verses tonight. John 14 verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. That's your inheritance. Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no inheritance. You have no share with me. You will not be with me in my household. And so what do you need this morning? You mustn't say, don't wash me. I'm okay. I, I, I don't need it. There's a hymn we're going to close with, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. It says this, Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Where's the bit I'm looking for? This bit. Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Have you ever said that this morning? Have you ever said that before? 
Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's my greatest need. That's your greatest need. The only way to be washed clean is for the Lord Jesus to wash you clean. How does he wash you clean? He washes you clean with his blood. His blood, which is of infinite worth. His blood, not my blood. I can't save you. I couldn't lay down my life for you. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's everything that's true to be a man. He took to himself human nature. He came in the form of a servant. He came in human flesh. But he is also God. He is without sin. And therefore, his blood, uh, in my life, in, in your life, with our sin, we have offended a God whose worth can't be measured. And so, what can wash us clean from that? If God is so perfect that his worth can't be measured, I need a blood of infinite value to wash me clean. And here we have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient, beyond telling is thy worth. And so look at Peter's response. That's the only way we can be saved, is to have Jesus washing us. Simon Peter says to him, verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Oh, don't leave any bit unwashed. Wash all of me. Wash all of me clean. I think that's Peter's sentiment here. You need to wash every single part of me. Have you had a sense of your own sin like that? That you come to know the living God through reading his words. One of the, the most difficult things I ever did, I went to, uh, to Hebron in Dowlice, where I'm pastor now, and uh, at the time, on a Thursday night once a month, they were going through a catechism, and they were at the bit where they were going through the Ten Commandments, going through the Ten Commandments month after month, and seeing the depth to God's word, to his command. Why is something wrong? Something isn't simply wrong just because God says it is. His law is a reflection of who he is. It tells us what God is like. And when I see what he is like, as I come to his word, I become clearer and clearer in my mind of what I am like and how dirty I am. Lord, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head. But then look at what Jesus says. You might think his reply is a little strange in verse 10. What does he mean? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, what does Jesus mean there? There are different opinions, and uh, you can do your own homework and look them up. Uh, but I'm going to give you this view. Jesus says... You haven't, you haven't got to have a whole bath again, as it were. You only need to wash your feet. What does he mean? Imagine I came in this morning. We drove through Cardiff this morning, and my wife said, doesn't it look cleaner? So I, I don't know if that's true. Uh, but uh, she said, doesn't it look cleaner? But imagine as we came up to the front door this morning, there was a weed by the front door. And I thought, we can't have that. We can't have a weed growing by the front door of the church. And so imagine... I pulled it up. I pulled it up with my hands and uh, I put it in a bin or whatever. My hands now have got, got some soil on them. And so I, I come into the chapel and uh, I see Mr. Rachel and I say, Mr. Rachel, where are the showers? I need a shower. 
I've just pulled up a weed, and I, I'm filthy. And Mr. Akril says, we haven't got any showers in church. And so I say, well, start the service. I'll go home. I should be back in here uh, in time for the ser- uh, sermon, maybe. I probably wouldn't have, would I? Uh, but uh, I'll go and have a shower, and then I'll be back. Well, I hope someone would have talked some sense into me. Only your hand is dirty. And we have, we have plenty of sinks in the Heath Church. And we've got soap. And we've got towels. And uh, go and avail yourself of those. You don't need a whole shower. You don't need a whole bath. Only your hand is dirty. What's the point that Jesus is making here? When the Lord Jesus Christ has washed us clean, it means this. It means in the sight of God... I am clothed in the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has washed all of me clean. I am clean. I stand, I'm in a right position with God. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. In the sight of God, I am clean. And yet the Christian life is this. This week, I'm a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is no longer my master. Romans 6 tells me that. But the presence of sin remains. And there's a real battle with sin. And I battle with my own sinful nature. And because there is a battle with sin, and I'm in this world, well, there are times... There are times when you sing that hymn and and you really mean it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, that my soul could love and praise thee more. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. So prone am I when on my own to stray from side to side. Do you sing those hymns and you like those hymns? Because it's your own experience. Your own experience is you love the Lord, you want to follow him. And yet so often you disappoint yourself. You don't need a whole bath again. That's what Jesus teaches here. That's the teaching of the New Testament. You're safe. There is no condemnation because you have received the righteousness there is to receive by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we're in a relationship. My children will always be my children. You can't change that. When we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are children of God. Nothing can change that. And yet relationships can be strained, can't they? So when my children don't pick up a wet towel from the landing, then our relationship is strained. I told you eight times to pick that towel up, and it's still here, I say as a loving but disciplined father. Okay? And so it is in our relationship with God. There is a difference between our justification, being right with God, clothed in his righteousness, and our adoption. So in our adoption, our relationship can be strained. We are told, do not quench the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. We can grieve God by our sin. And yet we are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ, dressed in his beauty, dressed in in his righteousness. Let me close with with this. The end of our passage this morning finished. I haven't done the passage justice. 
I took much longer preaching on it in, uh, in Daulis. Uh, but uh, the passage ends with this. He knew, verse 11, who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. It's staggering to think. Isn't this staggering? Peter went out and denied the Lord Jesus Christ with clean feet, washed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He told them that he would be with them again. He would be with them, in Mark's gospel, we read, he would be with them in Galilee. Here in John's gospel, we read, they will be with him in his father's house. Jesus says those words in full knowledge of what's about to happen. That Peter will betray me. You will betray me. You've been forgiven today if you're in Christ, if you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has brought to you salvation in full knowledge of every sin you will commit before you go to glory. You will go out, you will fail, and you'll do so with clean feet, washed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter denies Christ with clean feet. The disciples, they run away when trouble comes, when Jesus is arrested. They run away with clean feet. Feet washed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But here at the end, we hear of one who was never clean at all. The Lord Jesus, I think we can assume, he did wash Judas's feet. But Judas had no trust, personal trust himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference between Judas and Peter, ultimately, they both fail. The difference ultimately has to be this. It has to be one of faith. Peter believed the Lord would receive him again. Judas did not. And so this morning, this is the question for you. Are you trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Do you know that only he can wash you clean? And if you know that, uh, do you know what it is to rest in him? We'll sing a hymn. It's number 558. 558. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Uh, we'll stand to sing 558.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.